Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, Lori LeBay. And Alzheimer's Speaks is basically developed because of my own personal journey with my mother, um, who had uh, dementia for over 30 years. So this life-saving disease um, <clears throat> made me want to connect with other people around the world, find solutions, and um, find and also give support uh, to one another. So basically what we are is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our care culture from crisis to comfort. Um, We believe that by joining forces and just sharing knowledge and having these everyday conversations like we have here on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, that we can remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and help those living with dementia live with purpose. Together, I know that we can help people understand the true needs of this disease. So many really don't get it. And um, these conversations are are so helpful. I hear uh, from people repeatedly how much they, they love having these conversations that we have here on Alzheimer's Speaks. At our core, we believe that collaboratively we're going to be able to win this battle against dementia. And I know that we're making a huge difference thanks to all of you. You see, your likes, your clicks, your shares are pushing our resources out to um, society at large all around the world for free. And there are so many of our friends and um, acquaintances that are dealing with this disease that we don't even know because there's such shame and such fear wrapped around this disease and we just we really need to change that we need to let people feel comfortable um, dealing with uh, health issues like this this is no one should feel ashamed or embarrassed because because they have an illness and so again I thank you for your likes your clicks your shares because we were named the number one influencer online according to ShareCare, which is the largest health and wellness website in the world, and Dr. Oz. And that is quite the honor uh, to have bestowed upon us. So again, I, I thank you and I appreciate your continued support with that. While we have the show, um, we always encourage people to join us either through the chat room or you can um, call in live to the show, and that number is 714-364-4757. Again, that's uh, 714-364-4757, and we would love to have you join us. I'm always looking for um, new guests uh, to to um to share their knowledge and their expertise with us. 
Um, if it's a person living with dementia, if it's a family caregiver um, or a friend who is caring for someone or a business professional who might be a professional uh, care provider. Maybe you're an author, um, a speaker, a trainer, an advocate, a researcher. It doesn't make any difference. Everyone is welcome here on the show. So feel free to reach out to me and you can just go to alzheimerspeaks.com and up top, there's a big gold button that says Contact Us. Just go ahead and click on that, and I would be more than happy uh, to talk with you and um, and see if you might be appropriate to be our next guest. Uh, we would love love to have that conversation. Now, before I, I um, introduce our first guest, um, I want to let you know that our second guest is not able to make it today, so we will not have um, our guest from the Alzheimer's Disease and Research Center at the University of um, of Pittsburgh. So um, just to let you know, we have we have one guest today, and then we'll probably go to open mic for a while to join the conversation. But uh, Jill, who we do have with us for the first first half, is going to be um, a very fascinating discussion about keeping, you know, mentally healthy, which is something we don't talk about a lot. But before I do her formal introduction, I want to give a shout out to a few organizations that I think are really important. Um, Alzheimer's Disease International, again, is the association of all the Alzheimer's associations around the world. And so if you are looking for an association close to you, maybe in need of support group or some counseling or resources, um, go to Alzheimer's Disease International, and they will be able to connect you to the closest association to you. Also, when you go there, you're going to get a global view of what's going on with the disease in terms of research, in terms of global summits, um, in terms of the... Um, the latest and greatest uh, research studies that have been done. In fact, uh, in, I think it was in September, I just had Executive Director Mark Wartman on, and he was talking about uh, preventative study, uh, which is, is pretty inclusive um, and something that you can download from their site. I also want to give a shout-out to HealthStar Home Health. Um, they are just doing a fabulous job here in Minnesota. Uh, they've gone through the Alzheimer's Whisperer Program, in terms of dealing and really understanding the needs of the disease. And then they also help educate families so that they can live better with the disease as well and have some great techniques um, and um, information there. The Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation is one that does more holistic approaches. And, in fact, they have, if I'm not mistaken, a a webinar coming up, and I'm just going to look that up really quickly here because I think it's on the 13th. Um, a leading holistic physician, uh, uh, they're going to do a program on healthy aging and sharp memory with Karen Koffler, uh, who is an MD, and she's the medical director at the Cannon Ranch in Miami, Florida. I have actually had her on the show, and she's wonderful. So they're going to have a free teleseminar. It's November 13th, and that will be at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can go to Alzheimer's um, Research and Prevention Foundation, known as ARP, 
ETF. And if that's too long for you, just go to our website, alzheimers.com, and scroll down to the bottom. There's an icon, and that'll, it'll pop you right over uh, to their site there. And sign, for, sign up for that uh, teleseminar. And then some people are dealing with specific types of dementia, such as Lewy body and frontal temporal lobe. And I always like to remind people that there are national associations dealing specifically with those diseases, which can be a great resource. So please don't forget about those. Same with the National Aphasia Association, which has to do more with um, speech. And that can be very, very helpful for people. And then, you know, it's it's the holiday season, and um, Alzheimer's Music Connect um, has just some beautiful music that they have put together. In fact, uh, one is a holiday CD, and we had Vanessa um, on, who was on um, American Idol, actually, and she and Alzheimer's Music Connect have put a CD together. You can also get it as an MP3 now called Memories, the Songs, and Spirit of Christmas, which is absolutely gorgeous. They they have a a wide variety um, of selections, but they have some technology that enhances the music that helps people with dementia uh, connect for a longer period of time after they've listened to it. So what a cool, cool um, gift that would be for Christmas or if you're entertaining just to play as background music. Um, Very fun. And then Puzzle With Me uh, is a puzzle which works very well for people with dementia. Um, It's more age-appropriate, bigger pieces, so it's easier to handle, yet fewer. And um, it's more stain-resistant, very sturdy. Um, So check out Puzzle With Me. And then Jiminy Wicket, again, is is something that's close to my heart uh, with James Creasy. Uh, he and his family have developed this croquet game that can be used um, as an educational piece with schools or it can also be used um, by families intergenerationally. And even people in wheelchairs can play this croquet game, which is uh, which is very fun. Um, I have played the game myself with our, our memory cafe people. So... Anyways, let me go ahead and, um, you know what, I'm just going to play one of Vanessa's songs before I introduce. I'm going to just do this on the spur uh, of the moment, Um, just because I just think this is such a great holiday gift. And here in Minnesota, I don't know about the rest of the world, but they did a Black Friday yesterday for Christmas already. So I'm going to go ahead and play, well, I guess, let it snow because we just had a snowstorm here and we're still in it. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Oh, it doesn't show signs of stopping. But I brought some corn for popping. 
Beautiful, beautiful music by uh, Alzheimer's Music Connect again. So let me go ahead and let's get this show uh, rocking and rolling with our first guest. Um, I've got Jill Lefebvre Gaffner, who is the founder of Global Training Experts, um, which was established in 2008. And I absolutely love her story as it shows the power of her shift and how she's leveraged her new skills in caregiving with her base skill set of coaching and training. Her company was initially designed to launch um, global automotive quality programs. And although Jill had been a global training expert for many years, clocking over 12,000 international hours, she, uh, she had an even bigger job at home. You see, in 91, Jill became the caregiver to her husband, Bob, who was diagnosed with double lung cancer, brain cancer, and dementia. While raising uh, her family and supporting the demands of her husband's health, Jill also authored a book called Personal Positioning for the Caregiver. And um, this really, I think, She'll talk about how it changed um, her life and her focus, and um, she started supporting caregivers nationally, and she has seen that there's just such a growing need for this emotional support. So in 2012, after 21 years of caring for, um, of caregiving and Bob passing away, um, she now is really strong in this field of dementia, she's earned her certified dementia practitioner and the Alzheimer's disease and dementia training certificates through the um, International and National Council of Certified Dementia Practitioners. She has um, you know, a combination of two decades of personal experience combined with her certificates, and um, she's really making a difference out there in dementia training and caregiving survival so i welcome you today jill how are you doing i'm good laurie thanks for having me well i'm thrilled to have you on the show what a story oh my gosh i mean i don't know how much more the plot could thicken with all you had on your plate there um but you you kind of you know as they say um turned, you know, turned something that was pretty sour, you know, into an lemonade and move forward and um and just made it work. Have you have you always been like that? Have you always just kind of taken what's before you and and just kind of pushed through and said, "Okay, there's a reason for this. What am I supposed to do?" You know, that's <laughs> funny that you said that because recently I was talking to a childhood friend who I remain good friends with, and and I asked her that. I said, you know, I just can't seem to let go of these huge goals, <laughs> and and I, they just keep coming up. And I and I wonder if I was always like that. And she said, oh, I remember you in grade school. I I think you were a lot like that. So maybe, but it certainly didn't show its significance uh, until I hit rock bottom. And you know, the listening to my introduction, which you did a nice job on that. I um. I go back to those years, and, you know, I was so young when this all happened. Not that I'm so old now, but, you know, I was like 32 when Bob was diagnosed. And 32-year-olds, well, they're buying houses, having babies, buying new furniture, you know, looking at carpet samples. And so to find out that, uh, you know, Bob, number one, his diagnosis, he was only given no more than 12 months to live. 
And um, actually, there was one doctor that said he didn't think Bob would see two weeks. So you really don't have a lot of time to look and decide if you're goal-orientated. You really kind of have to shift gears. And uh, no matter how, you know, what, what was ingrained in you or whatever, you, you kind of have to do that. You have to survive. And with the two small small children at that time, Beth and Jake were only four and five, you don't really have time to think about it until it's over. Wow. Yeah, I, it, you're just kind of pushing at high gear, and um, I know I was dealing with um, <clears throat> not a spouse, but I had you know my mom, and then my dad had brain cancer, and um, you know, I, and then you're the mom, and you're working, and you're volunteering, and we don't seem as women to give up anything. We just kind of add to our plates, and um, I, I've always found that kind of amazing um, how we how we've been programmed, because I I really see it, and I could be wrong, and I'm open to conversation on that, but mm-hmm. I really think that um, that we were kind of, I feel like I was raised to be a caregiver as a little girl. That was just my role that I walked into the world with and, you know, was kind of nurtured to be that all of my life. And um, I do you feel that at all? Well, I I look at it this way. Yeah, I do. I, I come from a, a family of five uh, children, and uh, and you know we were very very active, and and uh, I, I think we were caregivers for each other because in order to make a house a large household work, you kind of have to care for you know, everyone. But but the thing is, you know, with the the whole female thing, the, the more I I look into caregivers, and of course, the majority are women. We are are better at the role in some ways because we have that capacity to be a little bit more emotionally involved where Mm -hmm. it's just the way we're built. It's got nothing to do with, you know, anybody being better or worse. But um, the fact is, as as the senior population grows and as dementia and and other illnesses grow, the population is shifting. I mean, we're up to 44% of men who are caregiving at this point. And uh, you can imagine how difficult that is for them because, like I said, females are geared. I mean, our, you know, our brain and so forth, we're, we're connected more to our emotions and, and so forth than men are. So, you know, for them in particular, I, I talk to them to say you you got to somehow find support because you don't realize the, the stress of caregiving, just how damaging it can be to you. Mm-hmm. And one of the statistics that early on I... Yeah, I guess I can tell a little bit of the the story. When Bob was diagnosed with brain cancer, that was four months after his, his lung cancer, and we were vacationing in, in Texas. And I can remember the doctor coming in, and you know, they, the terms they use for identifying tumors, as you know, with your your family history, he had a golf ball. That's the term, you know, golf ball in the occipital lobe of his brain. And they said, you know, we're we're going to say no more than 12 months, but quite frankly, it could be up to, you know, as soon as two weeks. Well, I go outside from this hospital. I was in Katy, Texas at the time. And it's nighttime. I'm looking in the stars, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, there's no way. I mean, we can't go through this. We just came through the lung cancer and the chemo and the radiation, and yeah, I just I don't think I can do this. And uh, mm-hmm. you, know, you start doing the negotiating with the big guy. You know, if you give me Bob, I will change my life and, you know, so forth. And you go back in and you do the best job you can. And you know, here I am so many years later saying, 
know, this is all for a reason. So obviously this is what my, my life was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so when you say, were you always like this? I think this was the plan. I think this is my purpose, is mm-hmm. to look to other people and say, listen, you may not hear from other people that there there is hope, but there is. There is hope. And you have to stay focused, and you have to stay healthy for yourself. And that's really where personal positioning for the caregiver came came in, because remember, my story starts in 91, and you just... Go back to 91, computers were brand new, chat rooms were brand new. You didn't really have that connection that you have today to find others to share stories and find support. There certainly mm-hmm. weren't the the group, you know, support groups like they have now or expos and and so forth. So in at 30, 31 years old, there certainly wasn't anyone my age going through what, what I was going through. In fact, my parents were only 50. They didn't have anybody in their circle going through mm-hmm. that. In fact, my grandparents, <laughs> I couldn't find anyone. And, uh, you know, I can remember saying I could live or die. And quite frankly, dying doesn't sound doggone bad mm-hmm. because the stress was just enormous. And that's what scared me. And I thought, I got to get, I got to get a program, albeit it's going to be authored by me and practiced by me because I can't find anyone else out there. And um, so I started taking these little yellow sticky notes, and that's really kind of how it all began. And I thought every time I have a good feeling or I seem to have a sense of humor, I don't know, I I have to remember what drove me here. And so I put these little sticky note reminders everywhere so that I would duplicate it, and maybe more often I would feel better. I would, you know, I would feel a little bit more positive. And little by little, those sticky notes started to make sense. And that became my program. One of the things that I uh, realized that caregivers do is we talk about our patients so much, though, that we lose our own sense of identity. Mm-hmm. Someone could say, hey, Jill, how are you? And I would say, well, Bob's doing good. Thanks for asking. <laughs> there wasn't a Jill in there. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, or you know, living with cancer and, and, and dementia and pain and so forth and You know, it's in your face all the time. So every time I'd have an ache or a pain, well, I would Mm -hmm. (laughs) self-diagnose. In fact, in 1995, I thought I had lymphoma. Uh I was was sure I did. I was dizzy. I was lightheaded. I was weak. I was exhausted. I, I had every reason to go on WebMD and figure this out. And I thought, gosh, I need a break. Um, so I'll self-diagnose, go to the doctor. Maybe he'll discount me because I've already diagnosed. He could just tell me how long I've got. I'll be good with that. <laughs> well, I did go to the doctor to find out I was pregnant. <laughs> oh. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is what's happening is I'm starting to think like a patient. i got to start thinking like a healthy individual. And um, And so part of the whole program is, Making sure that we establish the fact that we are not we are not the patient, and so we have to maintain ourselves, our mind, our body, and our in our spirit. I mean, you know, the I, I had to get around healthy people, read healthy articles. Um, you know, physically, I had to get myself physically in shape. I had to wake up those endorphins every day. I, you know, I had to listen to positive music, whether that was, you know, Motown, because here I am not, not far from Detroit, 
but something that would pump me up. And it's a daily task, and it's not something that you can you, know, you can for, you can't forgive yourself on uh, because every single day can be a struggle. Mm-hmm. In fact, I still do it today. Forgiving uh, <laughs> doesn't stop when we lose our patience. It it continues on average for three or more years. And uh, so to this day, I still work my program, and I'm going into 20, what, 22 years now of doing the same thing over and over and over, but I'm dependent upon it. Uh-huh. Well, why don't you why don't you share with us um, a little bit about how does a, a care partner really prepare themselves and their home um, to you know for a patient or a person dealing with with dementia that they're caring for? What kinds oh, sure. of things do they need to do for themselves and then um, also in, in the home environment? Sure. Well, dementia was, I would have to say, was the largest challenge for me because I didn't have a history. I didn't know anyone with it. And so a lot of it was trial and error. And first of all, I have to tell you, Bob's diagnosis for dementia, he was probably active active with dementia at least five years before I was willing to, to acknowledge that he had it. In fact, mm-hmm. in, even in our neighborhood, uh, you know, he had probably run into a number of uh, mailboxes, at least eight that I replaced mm-hmm. in a short period of time and before I really believed that those mailboxes didn't jump in front of them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I just, I, I don't know if it was me or the fact that there was no real written diagnosis. And up until that point, all the other illnesses he had had a written diagnosis and there wasn't one for dementia. So, once I realized that this is more than, you know, than him just having a, a an accident, that there really are some issues, then I had to work through things such as his driving. What do I do with this? I mean, he had a license. Mm-hmm. And, Lori, it's, it was difficult. He would, I would say, I don't think you should drive anymore. And I would be a little soft-spoken, I suppose, at first. He would take his license down to the Secretary of State. He'd show it to them, and he'd say, can I drive? And they'd say, well, you have a license, don't you? And he'd say, yes, I do. (laughs) And they'd say, well, then you can drive. And so he would come home, and he would say, well, you're not the boss of me. I can drive. I've got a license. The Secretary of State said so. And that was the way it was. Well, And how do you argue with that? You know, I mean, it it really shows the... Um, the need for education down at the license bureau, too. Absolutely. If someone's asking, it's like ding ding. There's got to be some questions here that should come into play if someone is mm-hmm. coming down and asking. But those dots aren't connecting. Um, at well, that there's level. a lot of dots aren't connecting. Bob would have regular grand mal seizures, and supposedly you were not to drive for six months after one, but the doctors didn't report it. So it was, there again, my word against Bob's word. And so, you know, ultimately after years of going back and forth and back and forth and then taking away his keys and then he'd find a way to either find his keys or get a copy of the keys. And finally he had gone in the hospital, unfortunately, with one of his uh, seizure episodes. And I went ahead and had the car removed from the house, put it up on the corner and sold it in three days. So there was no going back for me. And and, in many ways, I think, as a caregiver, and and especially working with a patient that has a 
illness that you you know that they're not going to recover from, and in Bob's case, that was it, you, you're more apt to give them everything they want. And that was mm-hmm. that was a hard one for me is to know when to say no and stand firm because it was the right decision. The um, you know the guilt that follows you by saying, "Gosh, am I taking away freedom and harming him more?" Because I don't want to harm him. I want to hit. I want to make him happy. Uh, but it mm-hmm. wasn't the right thing to do, and it, it it took me too long. Another thing that we did in the house, but not until I my Bob began to wander. And it, it's funny the. Sometimes the places that he wandered to, you know, I, I couldn't quite understand, uh, you know, he was going to find tunnels and and so forth. And I knew they were imaginary, but I would let the neighbors know, listen, you know, we're kind of having a little bit of issue. We're trying to keep an eye on Bob. And, of course, the kids were all home at that point. So it wasn't just my set of eyes. I had, you know, three more sets of eyes, and we would do our best. But eventually I installed alarms. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this ought to work. So I had these sophisticated, well, I think, I thought they were sophisticated alarms on the doors. And, um, you know, they would set off, you know, all the, the loud buzzing when, when he would walk out. Except Bob was brilliant. I mean, he was a brilliant man. And so he could get up on a kitchen chair, take a screwdriver, undo these alarms without damaging them. I mean, completely. You know, he had the logic to undo them and then set them aside, sneak out, and then go find his case. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I kept thinking, well, is he playing me? I mean, I don't understand. How can it be on again, off again? How can you have these these thoughts that can be so extreme and yet be so in the moment and so smart and so brilliant? Because, you know, it took me an hour to put each one of these up. How did it take mm-hmm. you two and a half minutes to get it out? Mm-hmm. But that's how smart Bob was, and he could do, you know, like I said, it was on or off. And so, you know, I have since learned that there were ways that I should have probably hidden the alarms, and I didn't think about that. Uh, like I said, I it was a try anything. Uh, you know, I didn't really have have a uh, a good example to, mm-hmm. to to lead from. But that was another. That was one thing that if I, you know, when I meet with people now, I tell them. Go ahead and put those alarms, but don't put them in an obvious place because uh, our patients can be very smart. Another thing I think I would do differently and I advise others to do is start at this point exchanging information about our past. Bob and I met when I was 22 when we got married, and so I knew Bob from the time I was 21. He came from New York. I came from Michigan. You know, we didn't cross paths before that. And when he started getting a little deeper into into the uh, dementia, he had different smells and memories, and I couldn't connect with him. I didn't know where he was coming from, and he'd smell farms. And, and now I know, because I have learned so much, that that was part of his parents' childhood. His parents were brought up on farms. And so oh. as, a, as a small child, he would go out to the farms and he was, you know, and this is all part of that. I didn't know it made sense. It does today. I wish mm-hmm. I would have asked more questions when he was when he was healthy. Yep. And uh, and then when we moved, and I, you know, I tell you, I tried everything, and, and I did. I, I tried to keep Bob in, in our house and uh, safe and trying to keep us, us safe, too. I mean, 
you know, it, everybody was a little bit at risk uh, at certain times. But I, I tried to bring in a caregiver after I started doing some international training sessions, and I couldn't be there uh, and uh, you know and, and run the family at the same time. So I brought in a caregiver and. I got her out of the newspaper. I I didn't know that caregiving was something people got trained on. I mean, I certainly didn't get trained on. I turned into a caregiver overnight. I just assumed, oh, you got these jobs. So I found this lady who was willing to watch my, my husband, my patient. And so I brought her in and she was a sweet, sweet gal. And, you know, kind of a, um, a firm girl herself, I suppose. She kind of lived in the country. And I kept her for six months. But you don't realize what you're, you know, she wasn't prepared for dementia either. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it that didn't work out. But it took me six months before I realized that, honestly, she was drugging him during the day to keep mm. him sound asleep, which was easier for her. But it kept him up all night, which was not so easy for the rest of us. Uh. And we used to take four-hour breaks because he couldn't be left on his own. And then Bob started fi- um, starting fires, and that's when I knew that you know it had gotten a little bit beyond our control. And the reason is because he felt that fire was the only way to control the animals in our home. And mm-hmm. so he would start you know, grab matches or, or whatever and, and start them on fire and throw them all over. And by this point, you know, I had started seeing like a burn marks and, and so forth. So we ended up moving Bob into what we called uh, his man cave and we made it very, very cool, I guess, mm-hmm. for him. And we brought, yeah, he was a Buffalo Bills fan. I mean, loved the Buffalo Bills. Being born and raised in Buffalo, that's not uncommon for someone who comes from Buffalo. But he, uh, so we brought him all his Buffalo things, like this life-size poster of a Buffalo Bills player. And um, for a long time, Bob thought that that was his roommate. And he would have traded me, Lori, for a Buffalo Bills player any day of the week. (laughs) 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 So, you know, he was kind of happy with his roommate from Buffalo. And um, and he lasted about four years, and then he deteriorated a little bit more. We moved him two other times, and, and of course he he passed away a couple of years ago. But you know there were so many so many times that you you look at your family, and if you look at caregivers as a whole, not just the those caring for um, a loved one with dementia, but as a whole you got to realize it's a huge population. I mean, almost 75% of caregivers are still raising their family or they've got grandchildren with them. And so there's that part that says I have to stay healthy. There's a lot of people depending on me. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's that other side to you that's, oh, so much stress. And they say that, you know, oftentimes caregivers will die before their patients because of that stress. Mm-hmm. And um, managing that stress um, is the most difficult. Uh, and the world doesn't understand it yet. I, I want them to. I, I really do. I think this is a a fault of ours, uh, and we can do a better job of supporting our families and our friends and, and those that we care about. 
But I can remember going through all of this and working full time. And uh, you have to be careful with that too, because when you are, you know, when you are a contributor to your household, whether that's primary or, or secondary, whatever a contributor, your employer is looking at you, going, "Okay, now I've got this new opportunity, but oh, I should not probably get in, get Jill involved because, well, she's got a load. She's already got yep. a load." So you kind yep. of get overlooked if you expose what's going on at home. I learned that, you know, early on when I went for my mid-year review at work, and it said Jill's a a great employee if it weren't for her excessive time off. And mm-hmm. so I sat down and I looked at my excessive time off, and it was 11 days. And this is this was back in 1991, so this is the year Bob was diagnosed. So. I missed 11 days of work. That was diagnosis for the lung cancer, the brain cancer, chemo, radiation, and three surgeries. And it was 11 days. Now, 11 days to someone else, they would look at that and go, only 11 days? Yeah. Yeah, but my boss at the time, my manager at the time, considered that to be extreme. And so you learn to keep your mouth shut which is not a good thing for us caregivers because you start carrying all of this internally and realize, "Uh uh-oh, I can't expose what's going on because, you know, people aren't going to give me what I need, so I have to keep it quiet. You have to Mm -hmm. internalize, and and that's uh, part of that stress is you're not relieving it. Even friendships, you look at friendships and you think, I've got so many friends. Bob and I were used to be so active. And initially when he was diagnosed, well, we had a number of people that would come around. But slowly they stopped coming around. Mm-hmm. And you wonder, well, why, why isn't everybody leaving me? <laughs> well, what happened? Yeah. I mean, I realized we had to back down because financially we couldn't keep up with maybe some activities. And, and physically Bob was unable to keep up with some activities and so forth. But where's everybody going? And then yeah. I realized that caregivers, the friendships, you know, people that are supporting us, that's a difficult, difficult position to be in. Because you never know, really, are you supposed to say to a caregiver, hey, I'm going to come over and help you? Or am I supposed to assume you're doing a good job and say, if you need anything, call me? Mm-hmm. And I think it's the latter of those two. And yet, as time goes on, we don't call. We don't no. because... Well, you don't we have time. Feeling. Part of it, I think you just, you don't have time and and you don't, I mean, it's, in our society here in the U.S., um, it's embarrassing to ask for help. There's like shame attached yep. to it. Yeah. And that's weakness. so, so wrong. You know, you go to, mm-hmm. you go to other societies and that's the norm. Yep. They, they do yep. things together. They support one another. No one thinks twice about it but here it's like oh really but yet when we when we ask someone who we love and care for who wants to support us they're not they're not thinking oh that's horrible they asked you know (laughs) i mean Mm -hmm. most of them aren't but in our mind we are so built here in the u.s to be independent and and Mm -hmm. on our own and we i I, you know i think when the whole country was started um you know that was kind of our basis was this whole independence but no one ever looked at how isolating that can be 
on multiple levels. I mean, even when I look at businesses, you know, one of my biggest frustrations that I have um, in this whole dementia realm is the lack of collaborations, of true collaborations that are out there. Um, because everyone's so proprietary. Everyone's trying to redesign and reown and instead of share. Instead of, I mean, mm-hmm. we can make so much more progress. We could care for people and ourselves so much better if we did it jointly. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you, it's a catch-22. Because if you expose your weakness, mm-hmm. like I mentioned to you at the work place and so forth, you expose your weakness, no one wants to be around you. Like, Mm -hmm. I want to be around Jill. I mean, this is a happy time of year, and I'm just afraid that, gosh, that may make me depressed. Okay, Mm -hmm. so you you got that on one side. So you, you you hold it in, and when you hold it in and you don't expose it, then on the outside they're looking in going, boy, look at how tough she is. I'll tell you, she's the pillar of strength. Jill, good job. (laughs) <laughs> you kind of got this, this and, and all you want to say is, no, I'm not doing a good job. I'm falling apart on the inside. I just can't find anybody to tell. And mm-hmm. and, and I think that brings me full circle back into the, you know, the, the benefits of your radio show, the benefits of, of caregiver support groups and expos. And, you know, we're, we're going places now, and there are, ways to connect um with others that are going through similar i mean no two no two situations are alike and believe me i get that but everybody's got a wagon full of stuff yeah and it doesn't yep. matter what it weighs to them it is enormous and exactly. and that's really what it comes down to i um you know i do a lot of uh speaking on on positive mental health and and it doesn't matter what the problem is. Just come on in and, you know, park your wagon under your chair kind of thing. And and let's get through this. And oftentimes I will ask people, you know, do you have a load? And they'll stand up and say, I have a load. They'll say, okay, well, you know, you got got 100 people in this room without knowing anybody else's load. Go exchange your load with the person who thinks their load is lighter. Who's, whose load do you want? Mm-hmm. Most of the time they'll say, I want my own. So that's right. We want our own. It's a load. It's, it's not what we expected. It's not the blueprint of my life for sure. But I wouldn't trade it for anybody else's yeah. load. And it's right? familiar. And, and familiar mm-hmm. uh, familiar gives us comfort um, versus starting from scratch. And, you know, that all of that is so so spooky, too. Mm-hmm. You know, with that. I'm gonna pull um I think Harry Urban is on the on uh, the line here. Let me call, let me pull Harry in because Harry is living with uh dementia himself and Harry always has some some great insight. So Harry, what are you thinking of this conversation we're having? I think it's a great conversation. Um what what I would like to know though is is what advice can you give a caregiver from giving up. Uh, caregiving mm, that's is, a great is, question, is a That's a thankless job, and and uh, so many people just want to give up. I mm-hmm. hear that all yep. the time, you know. But what advice can you give them? I'll tell you, the, the one thing I stood by day after day was that no two days are alike. This day will pass with any luck tomorrow will be better. 
just wait till tomorrow. Just wait till tomorrow. And sometimes it's like the light goes on and you think, now this starts making sense to me. And I don't know when that happens. I mean, for me, it had to be at least 10 years into caregiving before I honestly saw that, oh, my gosh, this was all supposed to happen this way because it would have killed someone else. I'm supposed to be where I'm at. And so when I when I talk to caregivers, and, and that's my focus, uh, is to look at them and go, listen, it's not always going to be like this. It's today. That's all it is, is just today. Tomorrow there will be new information. It will be a new day. You'll have something else to deal with. So just give it another day. I mean, that's, it's one day at a time, and you, you can't foresee a future because Lord knows none of us really know our future, so don't go that far. Stay mm-hmm. right where you are and just focus on today. Tomorrow we'll focus on tomorrow. And reach out and get social. That's a, that's a huge part of recovery for a caregiver. And I say recovery because we have to get ourselves back, that that person that we that we uh we were before we took on the caregiving role uh you know we like Lori and I were saying you know we end up forgetting about that person we got to bring that person back and one way that we can do that is by getting out and being social and and that's hard to do for a caregiver to be social and that uh not having the same lifestyle that they had uh you know, we have to push ourselves to, to get out of our pajamas. We've got to push ourselves to, to put a smile on our face and laugh again. And and uh, it takes effort. It didn't always take effort. It, it just does sometimes when you're a caregiver. Very true. Very true. Um, Harry, any, any other comments you have on this conversation? or? Yeah, I... Uh... A lot of times, caregivers become overprotective, and they mm-hmm. become overprotective to the point where they they handicap us. Um, yeah. They they know the danger of us doing something, so they they avoid us doing it. But sometimes we have to fail. Terry, thank you for bringing that up. You are so right. One of the things Bob used to get so angry with me about was um, I would walk behind him with my arms stretched out so if he fell, I would catch him. And this didn't matter if we were in a store, in the house, down the street, and he would look at me and say the same thing. Would you stop doing that? You're making me feel horrible. And I was over here going, but I don't want you to get hurt. And he said, but knock it off. I mean, so what if I fall? I'll, I'll get back up. So you're absolutely right. I mean, I our our sense of protecting is sometimes crippling for for uh, you know our our loved ones. I recognize that. And it usually was after Bob, you know, fed me a line or two. <laughs> <laughs> That's so hard to do, though. There's a there's a fine line with uh, with with protecting somebody and um, taking the freedom away. Uh, mm-hmm. We we talk about that so many times that that um, we feel like like our freedom is being taken away from us just to keep us safe. And 
some days I want to be safe. I want to be free. You know, I want to I want to run down the street and I want to do the crazy things in life. Um, and I don't think too much about the danger of it. I just think of the of the time that I may never have that opportunity to do it again. So I want to do it now. And that I mean that has to be so hard on a on a caregiver knowing that that we feel this way, but they have to keep us safe. Mhm. It's a hard balance because, you know, like, based on my experience alone, and that's all I have to go on. Though, I, I hear what you're saying. Believe me, I do. And it, it takes me back to some great conversations Bob and I would have. But, like, I would tell Bob, if you fall, because you know Bob had to have a skull removed. I, I don't know if we mentioned that yet, but Bob had this brain tumor. He was radiated, and and uh, the radiation deteriorated the the skull, we had it removed, and that's what took the, his first stroke, which launched the dementia. But he had this huge back of his head that was exposed. And, you know, where he would want to run, like you said, and do things and not want me to worry about him falling, I'd come back and say, but if you fall, do you know what happens to us? Meaning family-wise, we all go down with you. So as long as you don't fall, we're all good. And so, you know, that's a hard balance because, you know, I, I never put him in a helmet, I suppose, now that I'm talking this out. That may have been something we should have looked at. But but the the the, the fear of um, of him harming himself and what it looks like from, um, you know, from a repair back to the hospital or the damage to your brain or... You know, uh, how are we going to pay for it? Um, all that, you know, it's it's complicated. It just gets yeah. complicated. So there's both sides of it. With us, we have a terminal disease. We know that. And um, sometimes it's just fun to take a risk. Now, as horrible as that sounds, um, it gives us a delight that, that if if somebody says, especially me, if somebody tells me, Harry, you can't do that, I'm going to do it. Now yeah. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's because I'm proving I'm proving that I can, or if it's just because of of you told me not to. But I'm not the only one like that. You know, so many people I talk to that have dementia. They say the same thing. The caregiver says, you can't do that, and by golly, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah were you always like that, though, Harry? Were you like that years ago? You know, I probably was. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, probably, <laughs> I mean, I probably always that rebellious kid, you know, growing up, but and, yeah. and today it's more uh, magnified, you know, um, it's not that I, I don't like authority or anything like that. Um, you know, that's that's not it at all. But it's it's the case of somebody saying that that doubting me that I can't I can't do mm-hmm. something. That's how I view it. That that it's not that I'm not allowed to do it, but but you mm-hmm. have doubt in your mind that I'm able to do it. And mm-hmm. and there's a big difference, you know, between the two. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you. I think. In many ways, I relate to exactly what you're saying, and 
in in a in a, I'm going to keep it to the context of the caregiver position. I almost think that that may have been something instilled in myself as well, just as a basic character trait through all my life. So when some when I read the statistic that said, you know, many caregivers will die before their patients due to the stress, I, I think maybe it's that survivor mechanism, exactly what you were just talking about, that turned around and said, oh really, try me. You know what I mean? I can do this. I know I can do this. And and so there, that in itself, I think it's healthy and and healthy for you too, even to feel that way right now. I don't think you do it to put your caregiver at risk. I think you do it to have a fulfillment of a feeling or a or a part of life. I don't think that you would ever, you know, the little the little introduction you and I have had, Harry, I, I don't think that you sound like a person that would ever put your caregiver at risk or harm or anyone who was, you know, um, in, in love with you, any of your loving relationships. But that's just you. And you want to have a little fun and you want to do what you want to do. And, and who wouldn't? I think that's healthy. I, I think what it is with me, though, is I... Uh... I speak all the time about somebody living with dementia not giving up. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I, I always use the example that um, I used to do a lot of woodworking. That was a hobby of mine, and I just loved it. I built furniture. I did I did all these wonderful, wonderful things, but I can no longer use power tools. So does that mean that... That that my caregiver says, Harry, you can't do any woodworking anymore. No, that's not it. It it means I can't do those types of projects anymore. But you know what? I can still sand a piece of wood. I can still, mm-hmm. you know, do things like that. You know, at at a smaller level, and uh, okay. I can still get that same enjoyment out of it as I did if I built a a, a beautiful piece of furniture. Mm-hmm. Mhm. Good point. You're a yeah, smart man. I think That's a very good point. I think finding that balance is always always tough, and um, I, I think Harry's point is good about you know why as caregivers do we do what we do, and and sometimes I mean I have to admit you know with with my folks and caring for them, sometimes it was just easier for me, and that's mm-hmm. where I was at, and I'm not proud of that. But it was like when when sometimes you're just so exhausted and you're trying so hard. It's like, no, it, this is it, this is just easier for me, <laughs> you know. And I wasn't. No, Lori, you're so right. Yeah, I know. My son took uh, Bob. This is probably a good six years ago, seven years ago. But Bob, one of Bob's favorite musicians is uh, Bob Seger, and Bob Seger was going to Ohio. And uh, Bob, you know, after my husband had heard that he was coming and he was all excited. And I said, we can't go. How in the world would I ever get you there? And how would I get you into the, you know, the dome and parking? And, you know, I'm going on and on. And, and, and that's where I relate to what you just said, Lori. It would have been easier for me. So my older son said, you know, I think I'm going to take Dad to Ohio. And uh, we'll get tickets. So he he did. He took his dad to the Bob Seger concert, and and uh, he was able to get him in the front pews in his wheelchair and so forth, and, and Bob had a wonderful time. But 
um, I asked him, you know, when it was over, I said, wasn't it so hard to get Dad from the parking lot to the door and who's going to watch him to go in, inside and so forth? And he said, listen, I looked at Dad and I said, because at that point Bob still walked uh, short distances, so he said, I parked the car and I said, listen, you got to get into that building and we got to cross the street to do it. If you fall, you're going to get run over like a pancake. So if I were you, I wouldn't fall. <laughs> and mm-hmm. he had Bob walk the whole thing, and he did. And Bob was so happy about the freedom, there you go, Harry, the freedom that he was given by Jacob, our son, who took him to see his favorite artist. So, yeah, Lori, on your side, was it easier for me not to take him? Yeah. To Harry, to your point, was it great freedom for Bob? And, and yeah. That's something I can kind of relate to both of these because um, you know, it 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 was when it was all said and done and over. I think we were all very happy that Bob went. To this day, I don't know that I would have been able to do it because I I would have been walking behind him with my arms stretched out, waiting for him to fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's so it, it it is a tough role in terms of trying to find the balance. Um, in terms of care, I guess over the years I found understanding why and when I was doing things um, mm-hmm. made it easier then for me to to see from outcomes w- what was more pleasurable for all of us, what, what kept mm-hmm. us more calm. And it really was being more person-centered, um, being able to, to care for, for them in a dignified fashion where before I didn't I, I mean I, I think there I think there's this um this myth that says when you're caring for someone of course it's dignified and and of course it's about them and and it's just you know if you're doing this of, of course it's a good thing but it's not always a good thing in terms of our approach like Harry said that we all in this world need to feel purposeful and fulfilled and if we mm-hmm. start taking that all away the person isn't going to feel good and we're not going to feel good we're not even going to know why we don't feel good because we're all mm-hmm. there's all this interconnectedness and then there's a lot of um probably nonverbals that are going on and everyone's looking at each other cross-eyed kind of going what's going on and mm-hmm. everyone's kind of given up just doing their role to try to survive because it's it's exhausting um i mm-hmm. think on both sides of the page um to try to get this right so i think having these discussions are really important i think talking with the person you're caring for is 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 really important and so many times we don't ask you know how would you like me to do this how would you like me to help you know um be- because there's creative ideas out there that we don't even know exist because we're right. so used to doing it one way yep uh um harry what do you what do you think about that having uh, you know care partners really having a conversation with who they're giving care to and and asking, you know, how should we, how can how can we do this the best possible way? Well, I think a care partner during the heat of the battle, they they're doing the best job they could, and it and there's, there's a lot of factors that go into that uh, because it, it's such a demanding job. But then when it's over, there's always that self doubt. 
is that guilt mm-hmm. of did I do everything I could do? And they they try to analyze what they what they did, not realizing that during the heat of the battle, they did the best they could. And so many so many people in her in her uh, memory cafes and in her in her chats and stuff like that. That's one of the things they they always bring up the self doubt. Did I do enough? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. That's Very why I true. think when they say that caregiving, the stress of caregiving does not end when we lose our patient, it, uh, quite frankly, will go on on average three or more years. And and I'm finding that. I'm only at year two. Bob, Bob passed away two years ago last month. So it is a matter of I see it all the time, and, and that's exactly right. I Now that I'm smarter and I know more, and if I had the opportunity to do something different, so then you do analyze what you did 10,000 times to find a way that, you know, in, you can make peace out of it. And you're right. We did the best we could for every day that we had. I remember on a patient, you know, having patients, not patients, but having patients, I would go to bed and I would pray my prayers that tomorrow I would use more patience and, and that, uh, you know, I I would be better at, at my, my caregiving job. And, boy, that next day I would wake up and 10 minutes into the to the day I'd lose my patience and I'd think, oh, my goodness, it wasn't supposed to be like this. That wasn't what the prayer said, right? And I'd say, okay, well, i got to try better. I have to be more patient. And, you know, that's one of the things that I think is, you know, was, you know, one of my one of my many prayers was just getting more patience. I need to be uh, a little more understanding of the maybe lack of routine because we didn't have a, a very good routine back back in the day and and so forth. And and so I, I look back and wonder how could I have achieved a little bit more patience. And and like I said, now that I'm uh, uh, two years out, I have the opportunity to connect with people like yourselves and and others, and learn from from experience and so forth on things that maybe I could have done a little bit different. Okay. Um, well, Jill, this has really been an interesting conversation. I can't believe this hour has blown by so quickly. Um, I know. We do have- we do have more time to chat if you if you still want to um, hang out with us for a little bit because I know I didn't get to all my questions I wanted to ask you, um, but if you have to run, I totally understand that as well. What's your What's your schedule looking like today? You know what? I'll tell you what. I think I'm going to. I, I've still got another twenty minutes. If you want to keep going, okay. I'm I'm fine with it. Okay, sounds good. Because I would. I would love to ask, you know, what recommendations you have for caregivers to really manage their own stress? What have you found um, is helpful? Well, here's the first thing. Number one, recognize that you have stress. And and I don't think that you can be all people to everyone all the time. I mean, recognize the fact that this is, uh, if it doesn't hit you yet, it will hit you. So prepare a daily program, and when I say a daily program, a routine that you're that you you honestly are focused on. One of the things that I suggest is get yourself involved in reading, and not just reading about significant parts of a certain disease, but 
um, some positive mental thoughts need to start your day. And, and whether that's, uh, you know, artwork from your grandkids or your children or good articles in the newspaper, start entertaining other subjects so that you can offer them throughout the day just on, uh, you know, conversation, general conversation. So you're not talking about your caregiving all the time. You need other things to think about as well. And then the second thing is build a program, an active program, and everybody is different. And I realize that there's a, a lot of caregivers that are, you know, not uh, you know, like myself. I'm not a, a marathon runner by any means. But I do know that there are some physical exercises, like, for instance, I went and bought a, a treadmill in my bedroom. Still is in my bedroom after all these years. And every day I will do one mile. Now, that's all I've ever done is one mile, so I, I haven't really increased that. But whether it's a caregiver that walks to their mailbox and walks back, make a program of activity. And the reason I say that is because we have really smart bodies. And if we have some sadness, we have some depressed thoughts, we're down in the dumps for you know, whatever reason the caregivers are, our bodies know that. And they're going to look at those thoughts and go, well, listen, we're not real positive. We can kind of slow down the metabolism. And the slower your metabolism goes, the sadder and more depressed your thoughts become. So one of the things I teach is turn your body around. Force your metabolism to go faster, which will force you know, your, your positive thoughts. So some program, it doesn't have to last long, 15 minutes a day. If that's all you have, that's fine. And then, of course, I'm I'm big on uh, let go and let God. I mean, we can't do it all. We just can't. I don't say what God to believe in. All I say is that recognize the fact that as a caregiver, we are limited to to being able to maybe bring comfort to our our patient, medicine, um, you know, bring emergency care and attention and so forth. But what we can't do is we can't make our our patient better. Many times we just you know, I, I couldn't save Bob, and that was the hardest thing. No matter how much I could care for him and take care of him, I couldn't save him. That part I had to let go of. And I'll tell you where that came from. When we were in Houston and, and Bob was diagnosed with the brain tumor, we, uh, like I said, we were in Katy, Texas. And the uh, the hospital that he was diagnosed at, they provided a uh, a, a room where we could have Bob in a uh, in a private area, and he was Bob was a disc jockey in Houston, so he had a good number of, of people that was familiar with him, and so they allowed us to invite them in, go say goodbye to their their friend, and uh, they put out some hors d'oeuvres and you know snacks and beverages and stuff. And I remember walking through those halls, and friends of mine, Cecil and, and Joe. They kept walking with me going, let go and let God, let go and let God, let go and let God. And I thought, God, it one more time I'm going to let go and let you. I mean, you have no idea what this is like and so forth. It wasn't until years later that I realized what they were talking about. And that's the part that says we can only do so much. Recognize what our limitations are. Do everything possible to make sure your your loved one or your patient is happy and comfortable and have their medical attention and, and so forth. But 
think really when it came down to what was the most frustrating, no matter what I did, really the ultimate ending wasn't going to be something that I could I could influence. So, mm-hmm. you know, when I say mind, body, and soul, start the morning every single day reading something positive. Wake your body up physically. Get those endorphins going. So fake your body into thinking, listen, it's positive. I don't, you know, I, I do need energy. Don't store my energy because you think I'm depressed. I'm not depressed. I'm, I'm active. So do something physical. And then, you know, take five minutes to recognize what your day looks like, what you can control, what you mm-hmm. can't control. And then give up what you can't control and believe that it'll be taken care of. And that's really what personal positioning for the caregiver is. I mean, it's a it's a it's a handbook of how to make a program. It's a handbook of trying to look at certain things like social skills and how to get back involved with your friendships. One simple call to a friend that says, "Listen, I know I haven't been on your radar lately." And I know I got a lot going on, but I could use one hour with you, or could you come by for a visit and maintain those social skills? Um, I, I think that's just ultimately important. And so it, it talks about. It also talks about humor. I mean, gosh, we still need humor. We need to laugh. And and uh, one of the the parts in the in the book, probably some of my favorite part of the book, actually, is the fact that here we're getting into the the holiday season and everybody's holiday letter. I'm sure you probably get them in your mailbox too. You know, the perfect family and everybody's doing great and the kids are, you know, on the dean's list at the local college and, you know, we're forever giving to the food bank and, you know, no, 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 And you're sitting there looking around your your house going, really? Um, I'm hoping to match a couple socks today. <laughs> You know, or, uh, you know, I, I raising a family, you know, with me, the kids were all young, and I, you know, I, I look at, like, even sit-down family dinners, and I say, gosh, guys, listen, our, our schedules don't allow us to all sit down at the same time at the same table, so if you want to go see what normal looks like, you might want to visit the neighbors, because... <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I just your schedules. Uh, like I said, there's no routine, and there wasn't with Bob. No two days were alike, and so sometimes you got to add humor and look at uh, maybe some of the things in your life that some things that are, weren't funny at the time. I get the biggest kick out of. We tried to make normal, whatever that means, out of our family, and I I took them all to to uh, Disney World one year. And uh, the reason I chose Disney is because I had read up that if you lose a child at, at Disney World, there's some sort of a button and you push it and I don't know, the, the gates close and you can't lose your child. So I thought, well, this is going to be a safe environment for me to take Bob. I wasn't really worried about the kids as much as I was their dad. And so we did go. And um, I remember being on the that ride. It's a small world after all. That's kind of uh-huh. a sweet ride. You get into a boat, and it's nice, and the music is, is soothing. And you go through the tunnels, and we're going through the tunnels. But when that ride ends, boy, you don't have but a second to jump out. And, you know, other, you know, people get in the boat. Well, we jumped out, and Nicholas was probably always maybe six at that point. He's my youngest. And um, we jump out real fast, and all of a sudden, I, 
I heard Nick going, where's Dad? Well, we forgot to get Bob out. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and uh, he had fallen asleep and and, uh, and took off with the next ride. And, of course, we found him. And at the time, you know, frustrated and, and so forth. And Nicholas was kept saying, I'm so embarrassed. And I told Bob, you know, gosh, you know, I'm sorry we left you. Why didn't you jump out? Well, he had fallen asleep. So, you know, you look at things like that. You try and make the best of, of every day and every year and balancing your family and your job and your patients. And and uh, what my, my purpose is is tell the caregiver, don't wait for someone to give you permission to take care of yourself. You need to take care of yourself. You need to have those good times and the in the laughter, you need to remain social. You need an active program. Uh, it's easy to let us go. Uh, I think it's the percentage is like 57% of caregivers haven't been to a doctor in over five years. Wow. Now, we know how damaging that can be, but they, do, they don't give themselves the attention. And, um, and yet we should. It should be like the airplane, you know, the, the oxygen that drops that, you know, they say if you're with a a child or someone who's dependent upon you, put your own oxygen on first and then put it on that person which is dependent upon you. And we got to look at caregiving the same way. If we don't have our oxygen, if we are not healthy, if we're not taking care of ourselves, how in the world are we going to be a benefit to our to our loved one or our patient? Mm-hmm. Right? So... Uh, you know that that's the, the the thing that we we need to to do. And when I speak with caregivers, I think in some way we benefit just from hearing someone say it's okay to take care of yourself. It's okay. It's not selfish. Don't think of it as being selfish. You're not doing anything wrong. You're doing everything right. You know, take a night, bring someone in. If they say, "Let me come and sit with Bob for an hour." Take advantage of it. Have them come in and sit with Bob for an hour. If they didn't want to do it, they wouldn't ask. Um, take advantage of city services in communities. We had a uh, we had a senior uh, support group in Shelby Township, which is near the town that I live in. They actually would send a bus to come get Bob, and they would bring him back to play cards with other members, and then they would bring him back. And we took advantage of that for as long as we could. Uh, you know, there are, there are ways to give yourself a break, and that's okay to take a break. Perfectly fine to take a break. It's you know, mm-hmm. at one point I can remember feeling badly for laughing, thinking, "Oh my uh-huh. gosh, I'm laughing. People might think I'm cold and insensitive." Mm-hmm. And but that's how it, I think many caregivers feel. Harry, Harry, what do you think about the caregiver? taking time to care for themselves. Most caregivers, they know, but they don't practice that um, in order to take care of me, they have to take care of themselves. That's Mm -hmm. not only physically, mentally, but emotionally. And you're not being disloyal to me if you laugh. Okay? That, Mm -hmm. That just proves to me that that you care enough to take care of yourself so you can do a better job caring for me. Now, that's kind of selfish on my part, but um, you have to have that point of view if you're a caregiver. If you don't take care of yourself physically, emotionally, 
and mentally that you're not going to do a good job of being a caregiver. That's right. That's right. It's too bad that we didn't hear uh, your your words are, are, I think, what I would have loved to have heard for so long because this is all, all these thoughts that I'm expressing were all silent thoughts. They certainly weren't thoughts that I shared with anybody because it's, Caregiving can be one of those, like I said earlier, you know, you internalize so much and you hide so much for fear of being judged or looking weak or, you know, we we just don't want to look that way. We want to look like we are in full control of every aspect of our life when really and truly we're not. And so what you just said, you know, I I think is, is what I would have loved to have heard many, many years ago. Mhm. Yep. I I agree. Um, Jill, can you give us some ideas for you know why family and friends stay so distant? How do we how do we shift that? How do we pull them back yeah. or avoid well, that from happening? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Family. I'm going to separate family from friends, even though I know sometimes we have friends as family members, but. A family is is unique. Seldom do I find, not only in my own experience, but with other caregiving uh, families that I work with, seldom do I find that it's even Stephen across the board on the investment time. You know, there's usually one primary person who's giving more time and effort than than the the rest of the you know Indians in the in the crowd, I guess. Right. So somebody takes the chief position. I don't know how they get that chief position. Like I said, I think sometimes we're disappointed. But I think in a in a family situation, it can be extremely difficult to, uh, for family members to get involved with each other, you know, for fear of, for instance, my situation. Bob's family who lived in New York, great, great, great people, and we had a wonderful relationship until Bob got sick. When Bob got sick, it scared them so much. I mean, it scared them, the daylights out of them. So they didn't offer any support. There was only one time that I actually came out and asked, you know, can you help us financially? I've hit rock bottom, and I had. And I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And uh, and they said no, that, uh, you know what, this is your job. Uh, this is, you know, you're the wife. This is what you do. And it made me stronger, so I have no hard feelings. It really did you know, make make us stronger. But I think for a caregiver, just expect that no two family members will have the same investment. And then you won't be disappointed. People will give what they can emotionally or physically. Not everybody is a good caregiver, but you probably don't want everybody anyway. Mm-hmm. Those that can do it and are willing to do it will accept that, and that's just the way it's going to be. Now, on the friend side, that's far more difficult because friends have no clue what to do. Their relationship with you thus far has been on the social level, not not on this type of level. So they know how to have fun with you, go out with you. They may know how to support you if you're having a new baby, but this is a little bit different. So what they end up doing is coming through to say, if you need me, give me a call. You know I'm always here for you. And that's where they end it. I think that's where we as caregivers need to reach out to them. That's really what they're waiting for. They don't want to sound 
cold and callous by calling and saying, hey, listen, all the girls are going bowling on Friday. We hope you will come with us because they're looking at it going, you've got a full plate. And, uh, you know, I don't I don't want to make you feel bad. or, or So rather they just say, hey, listen, guys, Jill's kind of busy right now. I told her when she can to give us a call and we get together. Well, little do they know that that's very hard for Jill. Mm-hmm. And that chances are I'm not going to reach out because you know, I'm just not there. But that's what I encourage caregivers to do, is if you have heard that from your friends, it's they're struggling. They don't know what to do. They really, really don't know. I mean, I had, uh, I can go on for tale after tale after tale of of uh, moments where we were surprised. Uh, you know, we, I always call them angels because we would end up with a, a gift in our mailbox or one night I came we came home from having dinner uh, at Red Lobster we hadn't been gone an hour I don't think and um, my front porch was full of groceries and gifts and formula and um, and cash at the bottom of a bag and uh, cleaning products and, and diapers and canned goods and it just went on and on and on I think I mean obviously my friends did those things but to this day I couldn't tell you who so they're mm-hmm. there. I think they're there. You just got to reach out and tell them, listen, I I haven't called, but I need to. I need to be social. So it's not so much what does our friend, what would a friend do, but caregivers, I urge you, make that phone call. You may not want to, but you'll feel better when it's over, and you need to remain socially active. We know this is part of um, the Relieving the Stress program. We We know social activity relieves stress. Mhm, and you may need it. Yeah, very, very true. Very uh-huh. true. Harry, anything? Oops, I was just gonna say, Harry, anything you want to add? Yeah, I used to get so bitter because of all my friends and relatives that abandoned me since my diagnosis. But now I've been living with this disease for ten years, so I've learned a lot, and. I have to ask myself, did they abandon me or did I abandon them? Now, I say that because this this past week uh, I did an interview that aired on the TV and I got so many responses from friends and relatives that I haven't heard about or talked to in years. And the first question they they told me is, Harry, I never knew. Mm. Now, all these years I thought they abandoned me, but mm-hmm. did I abandon them because I didn't share that with them that I was having these problems, these hardships, and life goes on. You know, they they moved on to, to their own lives, and, and uh, they didn't know I had a problem, so, of course, they didn't focus on it. So uh, all these years I was blaming people for abandoning me, and it, it yep. could have been my fault that I abandoned them. Yep. And, and, I, and that's exactly how what I'm saying. That's why it takes us to reach out, whether that's you, Harry, or a caregiver, to say we weren't abandoned. We all we have to do is show an interest, and everybody's right there. They're right there. They're just waiting for us. Wow. 
Well, this has been such an interesting um, conversation. Um, Jill, what is the best way for people to get a hold of you and to be able to purchase the book? Should they go to your website, globaltrainingexperts.com? Yeah, yep, it's, um, that's exactly where. And there, you can purchase the book right on, on uh, online. So it's globaltrainingexperts, with an F, dot com. And on there is my my phone number and my uh, email address. And if you just, in fact, if someone just wants to send a note, Jill Gaffner at GlobalTrainingExperts.com, I'm always encouraging people to reach out, even if it's just because they need to vent. I'm pretty good at listening. And, uh, you know, if I'm asked for my opinion, I love sharing that too. But sometimes we just need somebody to listen and Mm -hmm. and. And uh, certainly, it, you know, it, it doesn't hurt. So, but yeah, everything's on online. Uh, you know, learn more about me, the book, how to connect. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, pretty much an open book out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's that's great. I appreciate you spending uh, so much time with us today. And again, I think the book people will find helpful. It's called Personal Positioning. For the caregiver, ways to stay mentally healthy while caring for um, for your patient, and um, you know it's a it's a it's a quick read, but I think you'll also find it um, nice as a resource book too. You know, it talks about you know how our attitudes can really um, affect how it is that we how it is that we care for one another, um, just all kinds of different things and. You know, keeping well, there's a lot adult. of humor in the book too, and and that was important for me to bring in to to say, you know, to go over some of the funnier funnier things that happened that uh, you know made us a, a a close bunch. I'm I'm lucky to say that you know Bethany, Jake, and, and Nicholas, the three kids, are are healthy and and happy, and uh, and the the survival program by itself it works and. Now that we're going into the holiday, and it's always a, a part of time that that I worry about caregivers. That uh, if there's an opportunity to to reach out to caregivers, now is the time to do it because, as a caregiver, I can remember thinking everybody's doing the ho 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 ha ha laughter celebration, and you feel a little bit left out. So, if there's any opportunity to reach caregivers, I got 65 million caregivers to reach. That's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I'm always looking. Exactly. Well, listen, Jill, you have a wonderful day. And again, I thank you so much for for being with us today and and sharing your story um, and your book and uh, just your insights. Um, It's it's amazing. And you're definitely a trooper out there um, making making some change and helping people out. So keep up the great work. Thank you, Lori. I very much appreciate it. Harry, it was nice talking with you. It was my pleasure. Thank I you. Enjoyed it. Okay. Thank you. Enjoy Thanks, your day. Jill. Yep. I'm going to just go over some um, highlights here, too. And, Harry, if you have time to just hang out with me a little bit longer, that would be wonderful. Um, I didn't uh, give a big shout-out to all of our veterans, which we definitely need to do on this Veterans Day. Appreciate all their sacrifices that they have made for us 
um, and our and our country here. If you did, weren't able to listen to last week's radio show, we had uh, filmmaker Chris Wynn on, and he is in the process of making a a new film called Much Too Young, which is going to focus on young care partners. And then we also had Molly Myers on with us from Mind's Eye Poetry, um, talking about creative ways to be able to interact. She does that in group settings, and she can actually even uh, do that via Skype with people as well. Our next show next Tuesday is going to be talking about living safely with dementia, and we are going to have Betty Robinson on. She is with the Pittsburgh um, University, and we're going to be talking about one they have a really um, intense profile that they've set up in case you would ever run into that situation, which is pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Have not seen anything like it at all. Um, granted, none of us want to have to deal with that, but you know it's best to have our ducks in a row if that should come to be. And then we're also going to have um, Andreas um, with us, who is from Smart Stones. And this is a new technology that they're in the process of developing that I think you'll find really interesting. Later today at um, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, we will be having our dementia chats. That's where we talk um, with a panel of experts who are diagnosed with dementia, and they give us our insights. Our last session was pretty powerful. We talked about advocacy politics, and policy. And so you can always go to alzheimerspeaks.com, go to our About page, and then click on Dementia Chats. There you'll find all the um, past sessions that we've had. I also want to um, let people know that if you have a any type of resource for people, maybe you're a speaker or a trainer, maybe you've read a book, seen a film, have a video, um, know of someone who has a newsletter, maybe they have a, a, a particular service. Um, that you think is fabulous. We'd love to have that added into our resource directory. There is no fee for that. Again, just click on the contact button and uh, tell me what it is you'd like to share, and I'll send you instructions on how to go ahead and input that into the discussion. Harry, I was wondering if you um, saw the... um, the articles that have been posted today about Robin Williams' um, suicide, they're talking that he may have had uh, Lewy body, dementia. Have you heard anything on that? Uh, I did, Lori. I'm not, I'm not surprised um, mm-hmm. because uh, now as involved as we are with this disease, we, we kind of we know the secrets that we hide and the things like that. And when somebody reaches that end of the road like that, uh, it's always, oh, my goodness, what happened? Well, we understand what led up to it. And it's not mm-hmm. it's not, uh, it's not anything malicious or anything like that. But, but uh, that, that's the perfect case of, of somebody having major problems and not reaching out for help. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, we, we try to hide so many things. And we shouldn't do it, but we do. And and we do it because of the stigma that goes with this disease. Now, once we get past that, then I think things are going to change. But until then, um, 
people just don't understand this disease. And, and my heart goes out to his family because um, what 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 he went through was horrible. You know, I, I can't imagine. Well, I can't imagine, but but uh, I mean that it's hard to think what led up to that decision that I'm going to take my life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know that uh, they had, uh, I saw an article just posted briefly, not a whole lot of details, um, but through TMZ. And, um, you know, they're kind of the entertainment world, but they're usually pretty accurate um, from what I have seen out there. And um, it said that the family was sure that that had something to do with it as well, with the suicide and it's awful. It's always awful to see something like that occur. Um, but, again, if it can help raise awareness um, for the cause, um, you know, that's in a, in a really sad way. It's, it's, a, it's a benefit um, if it's going to help people, you know, open up their eyes to this disease and, and think a little bit more in terms of, of what it is and the impact that it has. Um, you know, I'm always one looking for, you know, what what are the, you know, what are the benefits? No matter how bad the situation is, there's got to be there's got to be a purpose behind uh, behind things. I'm just such a a firm believer that you know, no matter what uh, what gets thrown to us, there's a there's a reason, um, you know, and it's usually in a matter of of being able to teach and to be able to help others, um, you know, find hope. Where there isn't any. This is, so, um, this is a classic case of, of, okay, let's grieve and then let's let's take advantage of, of uh, the benefits that can come out of this. Let's turn it around from being a sadness into something good. And, mm-hmm. and the good that's coming out of this is more people is talking about, about dementia. More people is, is starting to open up. So um, as sad as it, is, as, as it is, there is a lot of good coming out of this. Now I don't know if it was planned that way, but but we have to we have to do that. We can't keep dwelling on the sadness of this disease. Let's use it to our benefit. Yep, I agree. I agree. Well, I am um, excited you're going to be joining us for Dementia Chats this afternoon. Um, any particular yes. topics that you're interested in talking about, Harry, on that in nope, that conversation? I just, I just enjoy I just enjoy talking about anything that that's concerned with awareness. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's just nope, so, that helps out. Yeah, no, the conversations are always so powerful, um, and it's kind of fun to go with the flow. You know, and uh, to see where they lead, and that's I think one of the beautiful things about dementia chats is, you know, they're they're not pre-planned. Um, we really want to listen to everybody's um, thoughts and and go where where our you know our participants and our members want to go, um, having some pretty powerful conversations. Like I said last. Uh, you know, two weeks ago when we had uh, our conversation about advocacy and, and policy and politics was was very heartfelt. Um, and um, I, I thought some very important things were discussed um, on that on that particular um, show.
show, which was interesting, and all of the Dementia Chats are archived, so people can go back and, and watch any of them at any time, which I think is, is also nice, too, because I always learn so much from you guys. I just, you you make my, um, you, you make me think, you know, why do I do what I do when I do it, you know, and that's that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. So, any last-minute comments you have, Harry? Yeah, what's so nice about these chats, Lori, is uh, once, once the hour is up, it doesn't stop. It continues. Uh, like that uh, that chat we had two weeks ago, that's still going on. I mean, people are uh-huh. still talking about that. And, and that's what's so nice about it because it opened up the doors to a lot of conversation, and I think that's what the goal is. Yeah, oh, definitely. Definitely that is the goal. And um, it's it's very fun um, because they're just they're they're so energized the the conversations and like you said they do open up the door for people to to further talk um, online and offline both in terms of of what's important and what do they want to see changed and um, how do they think that needs to be um, yeah it's it's pretty exciting stuff. And um, it's just an honor to be to be part of it, um, and to be able to to um, help host um, the conversation, you know, with it all. I know Elon's not going to be able to join us today. Um, he has a, um, I think he was going to be out in New York, if I'm not mistaken, at a conference or something. But um, I know Robert's coming. We'll see who else is going to be there. And um, we have a lot of regular participants, and then we always have new people. And, again, this can be, uh, you know, it's open to people with dementia, um, care partners, um, both personal and professional, as well as advocates or people just interested in learning more. So come and join us. I'll be posting um, on Alzheimer's Speaks uh, blog here shortly and on our Facebook pages as well. You'll just have to click the link. There is no password. Um, just put in your name and and join us again. We start at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and that's 2 Central, 1 Mountain, and Noon Pacific Time. And if you're across the pond, that's at 4 o'clock for London time. So, wonderful. Well, I'm looking forward very much to that conversation, Harry. And um, anything else that you want to add? Nope. Just have a good day. And uh, it's a sunny day. Smile and pass it on. Okay. Sounds like a plan. I'm going to close this up with one more Christmas song from Vanessa's uh, album, which is Memories, the Songs in Spirit of Christmas. It's uh, it's awful white here. We got dumped with snow, so I think I'm going to go with Winter Wonderland to close us out. We'll talk next week. Say bells are ring. Are you listening? In the lane, snow is glistening. A beautiful sight. We're happy tonight. Walking in a winter wonderland. Gone away. And if you're interested in getting that CD or MP3, you can go to Alzheimer's uh, Music Connect 
Uh, again, it's called Memories, the Songs and Spirits of Christmas. Till next week, we'll talk then. Bye. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.